0: So let's turn 1 Corinthians chapter number 15 this morning. And I'd like to begin reading at verse number 51. And let's go to the Word of God. Isn't it amazing that we have the inspired, inerrant, preserved Word of God before us this morning? What an astounding truth. I mean, we don't have to wonder, amen? We don't have to wonder what we've got before us. We know we have the Word and words of God, the very mind of God for humanity this morning. We ought to approach it reverently, uh, but jubilantly as well, that we have God's mind on the matter. So let's read together, beginning in verse number 51. Paul, writing under inspiration of the Holy Ghost, says, Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. "...in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed." Aren't you looking forward to that change that's going to take place? "...for this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption, and this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice verse 58, our text is found there. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. For as much as ye know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Let's read it again. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. You notice it doesn't say abounding in the fruit of the Lord. Now, if we're abounding in the work, we'll be abounding in the fruit. But it doesn't say abounding in the fruit. It says abounding in the work. Abounding in the work of the Lord. For as much as ye know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Let's pray together this morning. Heavenly Father, thank You for this time. Thank You for Your goodness and grace upon us. Thank You, Lord, that this morning as I stand, that the Holy Ghost can help me. Father, that Your Holy Word can do the work in hearts. Thank You, Lord, as uh, folks sit and listen, that we can listen with sanctified ears. Father, that You might open them, that we might hear and have these words through the Holy Ghost applied to our hearts. And I pray, God, that this morning that You would affect us in a supernatural way. Lord, not in some manifestation of uh, sensationalism or some appeal to the flesh, but in holiness, Lord, that You would uh, break down strongholds in our hearts and lives, that You'd encourage us to a closer walk with You. Lord, if there's one amongst us that's lost and undone this morning, I, I pray that You'd shown their need of Calvary, that they'd be everlastingly born again before it's everlastingly too late. God, I pray that you gain the glory out of everything that takes place this morning. Lord, we love You. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. 1 Corinthians chapter number 15 presents to us what I believe to be one of the most important chapters in all the Word of God. It presents to us the truth of the resurrection. And as you study the scope of this chapter, it's fascinating all the things that are dealt with. If you look early on in the chapter, you'll find that the gospel is dealt with. That's the good news of Christ's death on Calvary and his glorious resurrection for you and I. Uh, The importance of the resurrection is dealt with. Uh, The manner of the resurrection or the order of it or how it's structured is dealt with in this passage. Uh, The moment or the timing of it is dealt with in this passage. Uh, The reason that the resurrection will take place is dealt with in this passage. And so it's interesting to me. You know, you'll hear people say sometimes, and I've heard people say, well, doctrines of no use. Well, I don't believe that, because as we read through this passage, we find that all this doctrine is given. And in verse number 58, the word therefore is used. Now, that word therefore is important. Read your Bible closely. It says therefore. Now, that word therefore, that that connects two thoughts and ideas, doesn't it? Uh, If I was to say, uh, you know, I preached too long, therefore, everybody got mad, that's a connecting thought, you understand. Or if I was to say, I preached for a very short time, therefore, people gave me love offerings, that's a connecting word, you understand. It connects a thought. It beckons us to look backwards at what is previously written. And so we find that in this passage, doctrine is the reason for our service that is given. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. We're dealing with the idea of what we do for Jesus Christ this morning. How we serve Him. I believe everybody ought to serve Him. I know that seems simple, but it's not simple to some folks. Amen? Everybody ought to serve Jesus Christ. And everybody serves in different ways, different capacities. Not everybody can do what other people can do. I mean, listen, if we're going to have a fundraiser where we're going to bake pies and sell them and raise money, you do not want this preacher baking pies, amen? Uh, we wouldn't raise anything. In fact, if I had to guess, it might be the Lord come and shut us down over me trying to do that. Uh, there's other things that I might be able to do that you may not, things you may be able to do that I may not be able to, but it's given to every single one of us to be steadfast in this work, to be unmovable in this work, and to be always abounding in our service for Jesus Christ. A Christian that's not serving God is defeating the very purpose for which God leaves them upon this earth. Do you know if the Lord loves you so much He'd send your son to die or His son to die for you, it probably bears to reason that He would love to have you in His presence, don't you think? And I am firmly convinced that the only reason the Lord allows His children uh, to stay in the midst of the suffering and pain and doubt and frustration of this world is because He's got a work here left for us to do. Uh, You know, uh, it's always great comfort when you see somebody that has been suffering. I preached a funeral yesterday of a lady that had a debilitating disease, and uh, she had suffered for a lot of years. And you say, well, why would she die then? Because the Lord was done with the work that He had called her to do. And He didn't want to see her suffer any longer. That ought to encourage you. If you're uh, like a lot of folks, you're probably to an age when, when you begin to hurt and to ache. I mean, you probably have pains in places you didn't know you had, amen? And you've come to a place in your life where when you go to bed at night, you put more yourself on the nightstand than you do in the bed, amen? You're at that place in your life. Can I encourage you by saying there's a work left for you to do, or you wouldn't be left here to do it. And so God is giving us this exhortation concerning service. And I want us to look at three thoughts this morning, and I hope I can help you and encourage you to serve God. I want you to notice, first off, that the reason for our service is denoted. As we've already said, that word, therefore, it speaks uh, retroactively or backward to the thoughts that are before it. And there's three thoughts that I find in this passage that I believe ought to be motivation for our service To serve Him. Could I say that the first thing that we see is the redemption that we have in Jesus Christ? Look what it says in verse 55. It says, O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? Now, the reason I preached that funeral yesterday, or the reason any preacher preaches funerals, the reason we have to preach funerals, I mean, about the best business you can be in is the mortician business. They ain't never going to go out of business till Jesus comes back, amen? Even then they'll have some time. But, uh, you know, they ain't never going to go out of business. Uh, but the whole reason that those funerals take place is because death separates us one from another. And there is a sorrow and a sting that is within death. And death has been something that humanity has never been able to conquer. There's a lot of diseases they can uh, cure. And they've uh, come up with vaccines and cures for lots of diseases. But they ain't never cured death. Amen? They never cured death. They can't cure death. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what your station in life. If you live long enough, you're going to quit living. I mean, that's just the reality of life. Death has a sting and grave has a victory. Try as they may, humanity cannot conquer the grave in and of themselves. And yet the Bible says that death will one day be swallowed up in victory and says in verse 57, we have victory through Jesus Christ. Now, how did that take place? Look at verse number 56. It says, the sting of death is sin. Now, this phrasing has the idea of a stinger. That's the power of, of certain creatures is their stinger, you understand? I mean, a, I don't know a, a wasper. I call them waspers growing up. You can laugh at me if you want, amen, but I grow, go to my grave and call them waspers. Okay, some of God's folk in this house this morning, they call them waspers too. For all you people that don't know God, it's wasp. But it's not a very intimidating creature, you know? It's just a little thing. But we've learned to fear them. Do you know why? Because they have a sting about them. They have a sting about them. You don't believe it? Stick your hand near one of their nests. You'll find out quick. There's a sting about them. That's where the power is. The power of death is sin. Were it not for sin, there would have been no death. Uh, The Bible teaches us uh, that that, uh, the wages of sin is death. You understand that if the Son of God had not become our sin, He could not have died. He had to become sin in order for His life to be laid down. Now, he had no sin nature. You know me well enough. No, that's not what I'm saying. But the Bible teaches us that God hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin. If he had not become our sin, if he had not borne our sin, he could have never died because uh, death is the result of sin in the experience of humanity. So you know what God did? And we'll, we'll go back a little further. It says the strength of sin is the law. Uh, The Word of God is very clear about this. You know, sin has existed in this world as a plague upon humanity ever since Adam first tasted of the fruit that God forbid him to eat of. And it's been passed down from Adam until now. You know, the Bible says that death has reigned from Adam until now. And it's a common experience for all of humanity to know what sin is, to do wrong, to be at aught with God, uh, to exert our independence concerning His will. We all sin. I, I don't care how good you are. You still are a sinner. You, you all sin. We all sin. I sin. Every single one of us, we all sin. But do you know that there was a lot of things that were sin that mankind did not know were sin until God made them aware that they were sin? The Bible says that sin existed before the law. But Paul wrote this way and he said that when the law came, sin revived and I died. God laid out some parameters, said this is what I consider sin to be. And so the law or God's will concerning what's right and what's wrong dictates to us what sin is. God set a measure or set a standard by which he measured holiness. He said if you want to be as holy as me, even if you didn't have a sin nature, if you wanted to be as holy as me, you'd have to adhere to these things. And we all think about the Ten Commandments. We've been reading through the book of Exodus uh, in our family devotions at night, and we just read through the Ten Commandments. We all think about the Ten Commandments. Uh, But uh, listen, brother, there wasn't just ten of them. Uh, Over 600 commandments in the Old Testament that God gave, uh, ceremonially and morally and socially, Uh, He uh, laid out boundaries and denoted what was right and what was wrong. And you may say, well, I've kept most of them, but the book of James says if you broke one, you might as well broke them all. You've offended the same holy God when you broke one as if you had broke every single one of them. The law denoted those things. And God set a standard. God said you cannot keep this standard. And the Bible says that the law was not given to bring us unto God. But the book of Romans says that the law was given uh, that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world would become guilty before God. The law was given not to bring us to God, but to show us just how far from God we really are. Show us we couldn't keep it. It was impossible. And so the book of Galatians teaches us that what the law did was it caused us to look for someone that could stand in the gap. The Bible calls the law our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ. It made us aware of our inability. It caused us to cry out for a deliverer. Well, God had already made provision for a deliverer. And he sent his son Jesus Christ, born of a woman, born under the law, that he might fulfill the law. Not that he might destroy it, but that he might fulfill it. You say, well, what's the difference? Destroying it would have been to disagree or to ignore it. He didn't do that. He satisfied the law. The Bible teaches that He paid our sin. You say, preacher, I know this. Well, it helps me to preach it again. I hope it helps you to hear it again. Uh, The Bible teaches that He completely kept the law and then He laid down His life on Calvary. For you and I, our unrighteousness is forgiven by the righteousness of Christ and His righteousness is superimposed upon us, we are now children of God. Now, let me tell you something. If that's not motivation enough to serve God, I don't know what else would be. I mean, friend, we were lost, we were undone, couldn't help ourselves, we were helpless, we were hopeless. I mean, do you realize where we'd be this morning if it wasn't for Christ? I mean, listen, friend, if it wasn't for Calvary, uh, you'd be in hell with your neck broke right next to me this morning. We owe everything to Jesus Christ. You know, it's kind of like I remember whenever I first bought my house. Uh, I, I had I can't remember who I had the mortgage through. I, I think it was Walker, Jackson, Williams, Smith, uh, Icart. Uh, I, I don't know. I'm just looking around now, looking for names: <laughs> McGinley, <laughs> McMillan, Dawes. But, you know, whenever, whenever I took out my mortgage, it was through a certain company. And then I got a letter one day in the mail. And it said that, that Wells Fargo, they had paid my debt. And they had bought my mortgage. And when that happened, you see, I mean, it would have been nice if they had said, oh, just don't worry about it, we got enough money. But they didn't do that. No, you see, I, I changed uh, creditors when that happened. I, it's not that I didn't owe anything anymore. It's just I owed it to different people now. And that check that I used to send to that other mortgage company now, Mr. Fargo, he gets that. Nothing changed. It's just I'm under new Ownership. And i got to say, when you're lost and undone in your sins, you under previous ownership. The Bible says uh, that each and every person that's never accepted Christ as their Savior. Now, you won't, you won't hear a lot of preachers say this this morning, but I love you enough to tell you the Bible says that you're a child of the devil. The Bible says. He says, that's not, that's not nice. We'll rip it out of your Bible like any other infidel would. Or believe it. One of the two. We're a child of the devil. We belong to him. We're in bondage unto sin. But the Bible teaches that Christ, see, He bought out our debt. <laughs> he died on Calvary. He bought out our debt. Now we still owe a debt, friend. We just don't owe it to the same person we used to owe it before. The Bible says we're debtors. The book of Romans says, chapter 1, we're debtors. We owe a debt. And I, I think sometimes we live in such an entitlement-centered society. Don't you believe that today? We live in such an entitlement-centered society that nobody believes they owe anything, anybody anything. And, uh, truth, uh, you know, the ironic thing is today this country is more in debt than it's ever been, but we're teaching our young people they don't have to pay anybody anything. Wonder what kind of mess we're going to get ourselves in, huh? It might be one day somebody comes knocking on the door to claim that debt, and it might be our children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren that have to find a way to pay it. But we find that we still owe this this very same debt. We've not changed those. And we've taught our kids, you don't owe anybody anything. Your life is yours. You'll hear people say that all the time. Your your life is yours. Live your life your way. Not if you're Christian. Really, not even if you're unsaved, because the devil will make sure you live it for him if you're unsaved. But if you're saved, uh, particularly, no, it ain't your life anymore. It's been bought out. You see, it, it ain't your life because the Bible teaches you were dead in trespasses and sins. You didn't have no life. And then Christ saved you and He quickened you and raised you and He made you to walk with Him, you still owe a debt. You just owe it to a new person. I believe we ought to serve God because of our redemption. Let me give you a second reason. I believe we ought to serve Him because of the resurrection that's coming. That's the context of this passage, you know. That's what it means when it says, So when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption, and this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying which is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. It's saying that there's coming a day when the old aches and pains aren't going to bother us anymore. There's coming a day when it's not, we're not going to suffer from the same things that we suffered from. And you know, that ought to give us some encouragement to serve God just a little bit longer, don't you think? I know it gets discouraging sometimes. You say, preacher, uh, do you ever get discouraged? Yeah, probably more than you. <laughs> yeah, sure we get discouraged. And sometimes you feel weak. You feel frail. You feel like Paul did. Paul said, we spend all and are spent for your sakes. And it's easy sometimes when you're serving God. The devil uh, sneaks up beside you and he says, all them Christians, they're just taking advantage of you. You ever heard him say that? Them Christians, they're they're just trying to get what they can get out of you, and they're just taking advantage of you. Well, yeah, if you're doing it for them, they might be. But if you're doing it for the Lord, the Bible says your labor's not in vain. I mean, it gets weary sometimes. But we have the promise that there's a day coming when fatigue and sorrow, and we sang about it this morning, and parting and pain will never afflict us anymore. We have the promise that no matter. People say, well, uh, you know, I just don't want to work myself to death. Well, that's all right. You go ahead and do it, and God will give you a new body. I'm not saying we need to be foolish. I'm not saying we don't need to take care of ourselves. I'm saying this. If you're weary, press on a little longer, weary pilgrim. Because there's coming a day when you'll get a new body. There's coming a day when you'll be raised incorruptible. And that brings about a third thing. You say, you done? No. Uh, <laughs> that brings about a third thing. I think we ought to serve Him because of the imminent return of Jesus Christ. See, we're working backwards here because that's where we started with the therefore, and we're working backwards. We've seen the redemption we have in Christ. Uh, we've seen the resurrection that's promised us. But when will that happen? It says, so when this corruptible shall put on incorruption. When? Well, when's the When? Paul speaks about when he says, Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. We shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound and the dead shall be raised incorruptible. That's speaking of the imminent return of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let me tell you something. I I know it's been said before, but I think it needs to be said again. If you're going to do anything for Christ, you better do it now because he's coming back soon. I mean, if you're going to do anything for God, and most of us probably have things we want to do for Jesus Christ. Most of us think to ourselves, well, when I get this worked out or that worked out, when I get this paid off or that paid off, hey, when I get a little bit more time here, a little bit more time there, we say, I'm really going to burn things up for Jesus Christ. I'm going to dig in and do something for God. I'll tell you this, you may not get that chance if you put it off much longer. I believe He's coming soon. Now, I know that the return of Jesus Christ is imminent. That means it could be at any moment. It could be even now. It means it could be a thousand years from now. Uh, Most independent Baptist churches, they'll burn you at stake if you say that. But that's what I believe, because that's what imminent means. If the Son doesn't know, listen now, if the Son of Man doesn't know, then the Scriptures don't know, because they're one and the same in nature. They're synonymous. He said, all things that the Father hath made known unto me have I made known unto you. So if He knew when He was coming back, He would have told us. But that's why the Bible says He doesn't know is to uh, dissuade us from trying to uh, pin it down to any day or to any hour. We can't do that. could be a thousand years from now. But I believe, and I, I, I'm of the persuasion, it's not going to be a thousand years from now. I look at this world as it rocks and reels. And I look at the things that are taking place in this world, and I think to myself, how much longer can God forbear His judgment? I mean, I believe He's coming back soon. So anything we're going to do, we better do it now. I mean, listen, if you want to serve God, if you want to get involved, now's the time. Now's the day. Don't put it off. You say, well, it's not convenient. Well, the devil will never make it convenient on you. If it was convenient, it wouldn't be a sacrifice. Wouldn't be something we're doing for Christ that we're giving to Him. Uh, it wouldn't mean nothing. I mean, hey, listen, if I had a hundred million dollars and I gave you a thousand, you know what you'd think, Brother Ralph? You'd think, well, I appreciate a thousand, but he really could have given me ten. <laughs> Maybe that's just me, but I think that's what most people would think. If I had a hundred million dollars, that's part of the reason people uh, win the lottery and lose their families, right? All of a sudden, they got uh, double cousins twice removed from uh, the aunt's uncle's dog, Walker, and they don't know where they come from, but they got debts and bills that need to be paid, and they show up and they want help. And then when they say, well, you know, I, I'm really trying to be careful with my money, they say, well, I thought you was family. <laughs> that's silly. That's foolishness. But it happens all the time. If I had $100 million and I'd give you a 1000 Brother Ralph, you'd, you'd say, well, I appreciate that, but he could really help me out more. Let me tell you something. It don't, it don't mean anything to give God your spare change or your spare time. That's not, that's not doing anything. That's what a lot of people want to do. Well, if it's convenient. It's not always going to be convenient. And in fact, if you're doing anything great for God, it'll never be convenient. But we better do it now, because this will be the most convenient time we'll get. Because one of these days, He's returning. We ought, to, we ought to serve Him for these three reasons. But I want to give you some requirements for our service. What are some things we're going to have to do if we're going to serve them? Well, there's three three phrases that are given. The first is steadfast. Steadfast. This speaks of being inwardly settled. Can I say that a lot of the reason people are outwardly unsettled is because they're inwardly unsettled. The book of James says that a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. Not some of his ways, all of his ways. And you see people sometimes that they'll be in and they'll be out. They'll be hot and then they'll be cold. I mean, their, their Christian walk is a roller coaster ride. And you say, what's wrong with those people? Well, they're not steadfast. They've not got it settled in their hearts. There's some things that we need to make our mind up about. I remember a fellow telling me one time, and it's always stuck with me, he said, you know, you only have to make the decision to serve God or to be in church one time. You have to make the decision whether it's worth it or not. Then after that, there'll be times you'll be providentially hindered. I mean, listen, any preacher that don't think there'll be times you'll be providentially hindered uh, needs somebody to redo his lobotomy because they didn't do it right the first time. Uh, There's times you get sick, flat tires, people die. I mean, stuff happens in life. We're all aware of that. But you make the decision to say, I'm going to be in the house of God, or I'm going to pay my tithes, or I'm going to serve God, or whatever it may be, whatever it may be. And then from then on, the only time you won't is when you are providentially hindered. You get settled about a matter. You make your mind up about it. We ought to be settled about what we believe. Never has there been a day when people are tossed to and fro with every wind and slate of doctrine like they are today. And the reason why is most people don't know what they believe. They believe, you say, what do you believe? Whatever preacher believes. Well, that's a sorry That's a sorry answer. What if I go off in the ditch? You're going to follow me off in the ditch too? I mean, hey, friend, we don't keep our Bibles under lock and key, and we don't do that for a reason. I want you to have your Bible. I want you to read your Bible. I want you to study your Bible. I don't want it to be just riding on the coattails of whatever this preacher believes. I want you to know what you believe. We're going to have to be settled. We're going to have to make our mind up that we're going to serve God. It's got to be an inward decision that we're going to make. And that's why a lot of people, and you see it all the time, you gotta make your mind up what's more important, your family? Your family or your recreation. Isn't that right? I mean you gotta make up what's your mind. You gotta make up your mind. Listen, we're we're raising kids now. I'm raising one. Well, she's raising one, and I'm paying some bills. <laughs> you know. I'll mow the yard some when it comes time when she can't, you know, but we're raising kids now. We've got to make up our mind what's important for them. Is it important that they be popular or is it important that they dress holy? Is it, is it important that they be properly socialized, quote unquote, or is it important that they learn how to be in the house of God? We've got to make our mind up about some things. We've got to settle them. I mean, this is I'm talking about our generation. I'm talking about this generation, that generation. I mean, us young people, we've got to make our minds up about these things. What's most important to us? Is it most important that our marriage succeed and that our kids grow up to know Christ and to serve Him? Is it most important that we live for Christ and make an impact? Or is it more important that we just be acceptable to this world's standards and what they expect of us? We've got to make our mind up. And there's some people, and I I don't have anybody in mind when I say this, but even in older generations, it plagues them. Some people that have never got settled. They've never got settled about some things. Listen, if you're not steadfast, you won't be unmovable. We've got to be settled. but And I was thinking about this word unmovable. And I tried to find a nice, pretty, flowery word. And you, you preachers, or you that teach Sunday, you know what I'm talking about. When you're trying to alliterate a sermon, you're trying to find just the perfect word, and it's going to sound good, and it's going to be kind, and it's going to be uh, you know, classy, and whatever. And you know the only word I could think of? I mean, the only word I could think of was this word. And I think it's really, Brother Charlie, I think it's apt now that I've thought about it, is the word stubborn. Stubborn. If you've ever plowed with mules, you know what the word stubborn means. Stubborn. That's what the word unmovable means, isn't it? I mean, if we're steadfast, that means we're inwardly settled. But if we're unmovable, that means we're outwardly stubborn. I understand that stubbornness is not a problem for most of us. (laughs) I understand that most of us know how to be stubborn. We ought to learn how to be stubborn about the right things. There's a lot of stuff that we're stubborn about. It's foolishness ain't going to amount to anything in the scope of eternity. But then there's other things that we ought to be stubborn about that we don't know how to be stubborn about. We ought to be, listen, and I don't mean cantankerous and I don't mean quarrelsome. But I mean, when I say stubborn, I'm not talking about in your relationship with other Christians. I'm talking about in your relationship with your flesh. We've got to learn to be stubborn against our flesh because the flesh is persistent. We ought to be stubborn, stubborn about our prayer life. It's hard. I think, I'm going to make an absolute statement here, and if I'm wrong, Lord will correct me on it, but I think our prayer life is probably the most difficult thing in the Christian walk to maintain. It's private. Most people are not very well aware of it. It's easy, listen, it's become, I'll pray for you has become a well-wishing thing. And buddy, I mean, listen, I know, I know that it ain't about opinion, but you want my opinion about it, it burns me up when I hear people say that. Well, you know, sending... You know, sending prayers or, uh, you know, and I'm not saying it's wrong, however it's worded, but I'm saying this, if you tell someone you're going to pray for them, you ought to pray for them. Don't just say it because you feel like it's expected. You're you're being a liar when you do that. If you say, I'm going to pray for you, pray for them. We all struggle with it. Prayer life's difficult. The flesh does everything it can to assault our prayer life. We've got to learn to be stubborn about it. Listen, a lot of the things that we condemn wouldn't be so bad if we would do them in the right way. I remember hearing a preacher say one time, there ain't nothing wrong with being rebellious as long as you're a rebel for Jesus Christ. Rebel against this world and what's expected of you. and Take a stand for Christ. That's rebellious right there against what this world... Trust me, you'll stick out if you serve Jesus Christ. And stubbornness is not all that bad. The problem is we're stubborn about what fast food restaurant we're going to go through. We're stubborn about what clothes we're going to wear. We're stubborn about this. We're stubborn about that. But then when it comes to our prayer life or serving God or giving unto the Lord or witnessing to people, we don't get so stubborn about it. Then all of a sudden, well, you know, you just can't be so hard-headed. We're hard-headed about foolishness. More than one church has been ripped apart by the color of the carpet. I mean, Christians know how to be stubborn about, about what kind of light fixtures you're going to put in the house of God. Then when it comes time to pray, all that stubbornness goes out of the way. And boy, they're easy to deal with. They're just malleable. And their flesh says, well, you know, you know, that prayer, that's not really all. I mean, they make more of that than what it really is. And then all of a sudden we're, well, you know, that's right. That's true. Listen, bad doctrine starts coming into a church and you'd be amazed how unstubborn some people can get. I, I, I mean, just believe any and everything. And you say, well, I don't like that. Well, that's Bible. That's Bible. We ought to take a stand for what's right. We ought to learn to be outwardly stubborn, unmovable. Not going to let anything move me. Not going to let circumstances move me. Not going to let desires move me. Not going to let expectations move me. It's amazing how much claim we give of our life to other things that don't matter. There's some people, and we go through it every, every winter, and I, I've kind of quit harping on it because it don't do nothing but grieve my spirit. But truth is, every winter, there's always people that can't make it to church, but will make it to work Monday morning. And you say, well, you're being judgmental. No, I'm calling it like it is. That's true, isn't it? God help us when the church has to pay people to be faithful. There's something wrong with that. You see, we live in a day where all of our allegiances are elsewhere. And there's some people that, that listen, if, if work called them and said, we need you, they'd be there like that. But listen now, if church calls them and says, we need you, I ain't got time for it. Or if another Christian calls them and says, listen, I need you to pray, I ain't got time for that. Where's our allegiance at? Where's our loyalty at? We ought to learn how to be stubborn. But you know what that's going to bring about? Successfulness. Always abounding in the work of the Lord. Success is not measured. Listen... Success, success is not determined by the applaud we get, but by the impact we make. Isn't that true? Isn't that what the the Lord taught His disciples? Uh, Here, listen, in John chapter uh, number 4, when He's speaking to the woman at the well, and He's not eating anything, and He's growing weary, but He knows this woman is in need of Him, and so He's speaking and He's witnessing. His disciples, you know, they start to murmur. (laughs) Baptists, and they start to murmur, and uh, they come over and they say, Master, Master, you've not eaten anything all day. It'd do a lot of us some good, at, amen, but not eating anything all day. And you know what he said? He said, My meat is to do the will of Him that sent me and to finish His work. Let me tell you something. If the fruit is your motivation, you're only going to work when things seem fruitful. But if the work is your motivation, you'll serve God all the time. I'll tell you why a lot of people give up on God. They're serving God for people's applause. And then when somebody hurts their feelings, they're gone because they didn't get the applause they were wanting. Or a lot of people, they serve God for some kind of power or influence that they can exert of having some kind of position. But then all of a sudden, when that power or influence is gone, they're gone. Because they weren't serving God for God. They were serving God for the things that they could get out of Him. There's a big difference between uh, loving the gift and loving the giver. And a lot of times people uh, leave because they were abounding in the fruit, but they weren't abounding in the work. Success is measured by abounding in the work. Success is measured by determining to serve God despite your conditions, despite the convenience of it, despite the circumstances, despite whether it's easy or whether it's difficult. I mean, listen, it doesn't matter what you do. You've not come anywhere close to doing what Christ did for you. We'll never outweigh the weight of Calvary's shed blood for us. will never repay that debt. And we'll never do more than what He did for us. Never. And so we ought to always be abounding in the work, in the work of the Lord. Always be serving God. You may not serve God like you used to do, but guess what? You get to serve God in a new way, different way. You may not be doing what you did at one time, but you can always do Something. Always be serving God in some capacity. We're going to be successful if we'll be steadfast and unmovable. And let me give you, I'm just going to run through these last three. We see the reward of our work. It says, for as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. We see, first off, that we gain the attention of the Lord. It ought to encourage us to work because God sees it. God sees it. Nobody else may see it. People have asked before, who's the greatest Christian that ever lived? I've always been of the opinion you probably wouldn't know his name if I called it to you. I don't know who it is. You wouldn't know who it is because it's not measured by men's applause. Probably someone that suffered and went along and just served God in a quiet capacity, willing to do what was asked of them, never looking for men's applause or praise, just went ahead. And you know why? Because they knew that the Lord saw it. That ought to be motivation enough. Listen, it, it, and, and my, my daddy taught me, and I don't, I don't know that I always do it right. You know, I'm of this generation, we're all lazy. But my daddy always taught me if you're going to do something, do it right. Do it right. Don't half do it. If you're going to do something, do it right. And as Christians, we know our, our fathers watching us. When we do something, we ought to do it right. We ought to do it to the best of our ability. We ought to exhaust ourselves in the effort of it. You say, that's too much to ask. Well, I'm not asking it. Christ is. It would be too much if it was this preacher that was putting these requests upon him, but it's not. It's God that says, Whatsoever thy hand findeth to do, do it mightily. Uh, whatsoever thou doest, do it as unto the Lord. Everything that we do, we ought to do for Jesus Christ. Uh, it's met with His attention, but it's met with His approval. It pleases God for us to serve Him. Pleases Him. There's a work to be done, and it encourages God, and it pleases Him. You say, can God be encouraged? Well, He can sorrow. The Bible teaches he can sorrow. And if he can sorrow, then he can be encouraged. If there's things that displease God, there's things that please him. And it ought to be that our endeavor and our goal in life is to meet with the approval of God, for him to be pleased with what we're doing. And then finally, because of the award of God, or the accolades of, your labor is not in vain. Vain means empty, meaningless What it's saying is God will not only see what you're doing, He will approve of it and He will reward you for it. There's some that would tell us that we're ignorant for believing that God would reward us for doing things. Some people say that's a petty interpretation of Scripture. And I say they're not rightly dividing the word of truth. Because the Bible speaks time and time again, time and time again about crowns that will be given to us. You say, why would I want a crown? Well, you'll feel awful silly when everybody's casting them at his feet and you don't have nothing to cast. Crown represents what you've done for him. Represents your life that he's given you and given you the opportunity to use for him. And you've you've served him. And so he's given you a crown and and, and an award and reward for that. And what do you do? You say, Lord, it's all been you. So I give it back to you. What a day that will be when we stand before those pierced feet What a day that will be when we look upon that uh, thorn-pierced brow. What a day that will be when we take in our hand, the hand that was scarred with nails for our sins. And what a day that will be when we take that crown off upon our head and we lay it at His feet and we say, Lord, here's everything I've ever done for You. And I want You to have it. And it's all for Your glory and for Your honor. If you're not serving God today, today would be the day Anything you've ever done, you've done on it today. You didn't do it on a tomorrow or on a yesterday. Funny thing about the human experience is we never get to grab hold on those two elusive days, tomorrow and yesterday. They're always in front of us and behind us. But today is the day that God's given us, upon which we can grasp and serve and and use it for His glory and honor. Make today the day that you say, Lord, I may have not served you like I should, but I want to serve you again. Or maybe today's the day that you'd say, Lord, I've been trying to serve you, but I felt weary Lord, give me strength and help. He'll do it. He'll do it. He'll see to the needs of His servants. He always does. Today, if God's spoken to your heart, I want you to speak to Him. I want you to respond in obedience.